0: Yarns at listeners. I am back with Dr. Lily Marsh. And uh, we have a little news to share at the top of the episode. I always introduce Dr. Lily and an important thing about her is that she's a founding member of the Hudson Valley Textile Project. Last night, March 11th, was a Zoom board meeting. And she said it was very exciting, uh, A, because of the attendance, which they were overwhelmed with, and B, because some important information was shared about some exciting developments. So, would you mind telling us about a few things that were discussed at that board meeting?
1: Sure. One of the most exciting things that that we uh, heard about was uh, the fact that the New York Grown and Certified program for the state of New York, which has long, or for several years anyway, made a lot of options for buying New York Grown foods, has decided to accept fiber into its program so that now there will be marketing opportunities and small business assistance and uh, all sorts of state. Uh, acceptance of the idea that New York grown and certified fiber and fiber products will be, uh, they will be help in marketing them and they will be help will be even able to sell them perhaps in like the New York State uh, rest area shops, any place that carries those goods, these items will now be available for sale. It passed the Senate bill, and now it's up for the Assembly, and I, I'll put some links if you want to go to your um, to the New York uh, Senate, newyork.gov uh, website, or so you can express your support for these two bills. It's just very exciting because this is something that we've been working on for a long time. Assembly member Donna Lupardo got all excited about it when Bernie Sanders' mittens made such a, a fuss at the inaugural, she ended up making a pair of mittens and giving, uh, making a push for this inclusion into New York Grown and Certified, uh, wearing her New York handmade mittens at the assembly. Um, and so this was sort of the impetus that if he can be famous for his mittens, why can't we be famous for our fibers here? Uh, so it was quite exciting. We were very excited. That's a, a, an effort that people have been working on for quite some time to get that included.
0: That's wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. And we've mentioned on a previous episode, but we will continue to do so, that the Hudson Valley Textile Project is something that's very important to both of us. So if you have the means and you have the inclination and you'd like to make a contribution based on how much you're enjoying this conversation... Uh, Something to think about would be to become a member or make a donation to the Hudson Valley Textile Project. Of course, we will have links for those on this episode's show notes. So welcome to part three. Our topic today is Studio Craft Professionalism and Instituted Identity. And we are so pleased to have Dr. Lilly, who conducted original research on the topic of Elizabeth Zimmerman. And this is the third of our series where she's really breaking down, sharing some uh, specific information and stories that she found, things that you might not know about despite being a fan of Elizabeth Zimmerman. So welcome.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: At the conclusion of part two of our conversation, you talked through the terms cultural reproduction and cultural production. Then we had a message from Jane, who's Prairie poet on Ravelry in our thread, and you indicated that your explanation was a simple one for what is actually a very complex process. Would you talk a bit more about that using Elizabeth Zimmerman's contributions as an example?
1: Yeah, yeah. It is, a, it is a complex issue in culture studies, this idea of how does culture shape and reshape itself? How do we move as groups of people and as individuals through our cultures? Um, and one of the things that I think Elizabeth was really clear about in terms of, of her work was sort of showing how knitting itself, that knitting is cultural production. That is, it is productive of ideas and ways of thinking that shape us as individuals and communities. These ideas and new ways of thinking for the individual can then lead to uh, new institutions which can persist beyond an individual, right? Um, And that knitting, the act of knitting, consists of making a set of choices. You can you can see it as essentially a conservative thing in that you are pattern following, you are reproducing what has gone before. And there's nothing wrong with that. This, And, and be careful that I'm not implying a political a note there to say that something is conservative. Um, if you want to make errand sweaters in traditional ways out of traditional materials using traditional patterns for the rest of your life, you can do that. And that is a worthy enterprise. But it is also, as a craftsman, you can make new choices around those things. You can make new choices around materials or techniques or designs. And that those new choices then can assume a form of self-expression that gets used a lot in, in what is known as art therapy, right? So like in art therapy, As you are are creating something that is expressive of your own thoughts, you are creating a physical object which allows you to manipulate it. It becomes a way in which you can manipulate your emotions and your ideas and your thoughts and in ways in which you can manipulate something and then put it away for a while and think about it later and take it out and reshape it again. And, and in ways that in the 20s and 30s, after World War I, art therapy was just beginning to be a way that people dealt with trauma, right, in, in the soldiers. Um, mm-hmm. It was coming to, to deeper understandings over the course of the century and the realization that the act of creativity is in, is in, in essence a way of, of helping you think through your thinking. So Elizabeth taking up knitting in this way, she never expressed it. I need to be clear about that. She never expressed it like this. But knitting becomes then this place in which you can make choices about what you're doing and what you think about what you're doing. Um, And as soon as that starts to happen, then that just opens up the whole idea of what you can and can't do, what you might be able to do, or what you might want to experiment with. It becomes, you know, making is a way of, of manipulating reality, both reality that's inside your head and your ideas and the reality that's outside your head and in the world. Does that make some sense? Yes, yes, absolutely.
0: <laughs> At the very end of our conversation last time, when it was just the two of us talking, we were kind of referring back to the notion that many creative people are using their craft as a kind of therapy, as um, a set of techniques to help deal with some of the trauma and some of the difficulty of life right
1: now. Yes, Um, yes. Everything from, you know, the, the popularity of sourdough bread early in the process to to, uh, to the enormous amount of knitting and craft work that has happened. And I'm mm-hmm. sure, you know, for other people, it's been woodworking and, and uh, you know, whatever other kind of making that you can imagine yeah. that has enabled us to take some control over a situation and make choices about it, yeah. Yeah, It also goes back to, I think at one point in the previous conversation, it goes back to the um, Japanese internment camps. The work of craft making that happened in a lot of the Japanese internment camps that enabled these people um, who were stripped of all sorts of individuality, identified only as Asian and stuck in these camps, to reassert for themselves then some, some choices, some statements about who they were. You make
0: frequent use of a term intersection. In part 2 you articulated three intersections at play in Elizabeth Zimmerman's early life, domesticity, professionalism and the artist housewife. Is noting intersections an aspect of scholarly research and how did these intersections evolve as Elizabeth Zimmerman was no longer just starting out as a professional but was becoming more of a formidable force.
1: Well, intersections is a term that's used in a lot of the study of the humanities. And for me, I think of it in terms of cultural studies. I must admit that I always have this image in my mind of cultures uh, and huge blocks of people shifting in a In a freezing ocean like icebergs moving back and forth, shaping and reshaping, bumping into each other, you know, breaking pieces off, reforming out of new groups, you know, the way the way a a freezing pond you know, hmm. takes different shapes, right? So that there's all this movement, but there's all, but there's, and but there, and there is some, you know, sort of general movement of a group, right? So that each group is moving along different lines and they're sort of bumping and smashing and nudging up against each other and shaping each other. And so that's the intersection. So, so when I talk about Elizabeth's intersection with domesticity and professionalism, I'm thinking about, the way in which ideas of what it meant to be a housewife or a working wife were all changing in this period, right? So that's this huge motion in the culture. And what is, how is this working in Elizabeth's life specifically, right? So it's a way of sort of looking at the big shit picture and situating someone in a smaller piece of that, right? And seeing how, how is this working out for her? For her in her domestic life, she loved being a housewife. She had no problem with it at all. This was not an issue for her in the ways that it is often an issue for me, right? I I often struggle with the idea of, am I a working woman? Am I a housewife? You know, as a younger married woman, that was a very difficult struggle for me. But for Elizabeth, these intersections change over time, right? Just in this shifting ice field, right? They change for her over time. She seems to have no problem with the domesticity issue But as she starts to work as a professional knitter, she's not only deciding that she wants to sell her work and that she wants to be recognized for her work. She's now interacting with groups of people um, like the Wisconsin Designer Craftsman Group or like the other knitters at the state fairs who have their own ideas about what it means to be a professional, right? So she's intersecting with these institutions that have their own trajectories that they're moving along. That's one of the ways that you can look at an individual within a culture that just provides a lot of richness, a lot of understanding of how is this person moving within her culture. No one is an island unto themselves. We're all while within, uh, 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 you know, this this pond of frozen ice that we're, I don't know why it's frozen. That's just that's the image that is in my mind. <laughs> that doesn't exactly sound all that attractive, but it is. It is. It is. That is just for me a very fruitful way to think about it. You know that it's shaping and reshaping all the time.
0: And I think it's helpful to think of that frozen pond in that it's slow. It's like kind of clumsy, no one's directing it really. It's just yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. And in fact, you know, it can take a long time for something to shift its trajectory. There's a lot of momentum that gets built up and there's a lot of collision that happens, you know. But anyway, so in this in this episode, what what I thought we would talk about primarily is Elizabeth as this original, this technically proficient extremely knowledgeable, extremely independent knitter intersecting with the fine craft movement in the United States. And that's the Wisconsin designer craftsman. And the intersection is not just that she's trying to join them. The intersection is that they're moving too. So in this period in the United States and in Canada, the fine craft movement is really trying to come to grips with what does it mean to be a professional craftsperson? And it's really interesting when you put that in juxtaposition with the State Fair material um, to see the State Fair defined an activity. The State Fair was not particularly interested in whether you thought you were an artist. They were looking at your jar of jam. They were judging an item. They weren't creating identity in that way. Whereas the Wisconsin designer craftsman was much more concerned with what does it mean to be a craftsperson, right? Within all the shaping of what that could be, what do, what is it gonna mean for us? And so it became really interesting, particularly as Elizabeth was trying to gain membership, it became really interesting to, to go through and i and i know this sounds completely wacko when i say to people that i spent a fascinating eight or ten hours at the archives of the milwaukee art museum reading their their series of constitutions that they rewrote from about 1940 to about 1970 and just looking at all the ways they kept trying to like draw these lines firmer and firmer and and say this is what it means to be a professional craftsman and
0: we're going to come back to both this Wisconsin organization and the State Fair a little bit later in our talk. Uh, we're also going to spend some time today talking about materials. Part of my interest in this comes from my time with the Fibercraft Studio. Some of the Yarns at Yin listeners may remember me talking about the teachings of Rudolf Steiner. And while I was a student there, we talked at great length about the necessity of understanding materials as a means of being a skilled craftsperson. And you alluded in our previous conversation to Elizabeth's shrewd assessment of American knitting and the sad state of affairs with what was available (laughs) to American knitters. Can you talk more about her understanding of and her contributions to American knitters and what they knew about materials?
1: So you have to remember in this period, and this sort of shocked me as a person who was a knitter and then went to look at what was knitting like in the 50s and 60s. You know, the knitting magazines and publications, we're not really talking about materials other than the weight of the yarn. And so even in the, in the magazines, the ads don't make any kind of claim for what is the material. Um, and this is a point at which you know, acrylic is really coming in, you know, post-war and the, and the development of these synthetic yarns. These are really coming in. And of course, these synthetics, they run through the mill machines much more easier. They're much less idiosyncratic than the natural materials. They're much more stable over time. You know, this year's clip of wool is different from last year's clip of wool, but the nylon is always the same, <laughs> right? So, the, you know, industry loves that sort of thing. But what it meant for Elizabeth was that she felt that American consumers were forced into the position of being a fairly passive consumer. And she resented that deeply. (laughs) This crops up all over the place in her writing. Um, She decides that she's uh, making long johns and she wants um, some half and half. So she wants some half nylon and half wool yarn. And she goes shopping in like four different stores in Madison or in Milwaukee, um, but she can't find any. She says, I gave considerable thought to the purchase, first going to our very best specialty yarn shop, because I'm in favor of a specialty yarn shop, knowing what they have to contend with and knowing how marvelous and under-reimbursed their services and friendliness are. Also, um, but the last, no half and half, not even much wool, plenty of synthetics, she goes then to the net, to the best department store. Same thing. She says, yeah, half and half is discontinued. Synthetics are the good word. Yes, we have some all wool knitting. worsted, are nothing else. I drew breath to scream and jump up and down, but let it out with a hiss. After all, the sales girl couldn't help it. When I said she might mention wool to the salesman, she regarded me almost with pity. Apparently, the comp- customer's opinion no longer passes through the sales girl. Through the salesman, through his boss, to those on high who are stuffing synthetics down our unwitting gullets. What are we gonna do? Well, we may be sheep and our heels nipped by the sheepdogs of the advertisers and merchandidere, but at least we can bleat. I bleated at the sales girl, only very gently, but a definite bleat, and wrung from her the comment that it was a shame, but catchword of our times what you're gonna do? I'm going to do plenty. First, I bought up the last five balls of half and half sport wool she had in some pretty undesirable colors, too. And then I said, if I can't get wool, I'm going to give up knitting. Then I sailed out. Well, of course, I know. And you know that I have access to all the wool I need. I'll never have to stop knitting. But I shall knit myself a woolly soapbox and holler from it at the drop of a watch cap. Sure, there's room in our culture for the synthetic knit. There's room for the sweatshirt, the work pants, the sneaker. But let us also clothe ourselves in good leather shoes from time to time, in well-cut long-wearing suits and in hand-knit woolen sweaters, all of them cheaper in the long run and all of them elegant and comfortable. She's such a wordsmith. Yeah, yeah. She writes, uh, she just writes over and over again about how, She's a craftsman. She wants to work with good materials, with the materials she considers right materials. And she doesn't want anybody else telling her that she can't have that stuff. So one of the things I want to say is, as a professional craftsman, there's there's certain things that, that any craftsman can do, right? You can sell individual work. You can look for opportunities to exhibit. You can sell materials. And that's what she starts to do the last thing that uh, that a craftsman might do is to write and design for publications right and she does she has her finger in all these pies Mm. so early in her days she starts looking around for yarn because she wants to sell things so in 1954 one of the first yarns she discovers is a heavyweight soft worsted knitting weight um in natural colors and that's a local mill cambridge woolen mill i think Now, when I say local, I'm not sure if it's Milwaukee, uh, if it's uh, Wisconsin or Minnesota, because she found this on a trip through Minnesota. It may be a Minnesota mill. It's no longer open. But she worked with them through um, it till it closed in the 70s. And then in 1955, there's evidence in her papers that she's buying relatively large lots, like enough for 25 sweaters or so, of wool directly from Shetland Isles. She's sending to Lerwick for wool in bright colors for indoor sweaters, you know, next to the body sweaters, and then she discovers in 1955, about the same time, uh, a Canadian manufacturer of of a yarn, Stanfield Limited, they produced a a yarn that they called Red Label, she called it her fisherman's yarn, and it came in some bright colors, and she used it for her Scandinavian style sweaters. And then further, in 1964, Meg was on a trip to Iceland and discovered Lopi, the original unspun uh, Icelandic wool. And, and Elizabeth started importing that uh, and started designing for that. Uh, and in 1964, she, in, in, in connection with Cambridge, developed what became known as her sheep's down, which was a bulky, lightly spun a yarn suitable for Cowichan sweaters, which were popular at the time, um, but a little bit lighter weight, a little bit, um, I, I believe that the, the original Cowichan sweaters were pretty much spun in the grease, and so this was not a grease yarn. So these were the, the big five yarns that she, that really based her stuff on, um, and, and, ex- and show her, her range of understanding of how different wools were good for different things. She's sourcing
0: them and then making them available. Is she having anything made to her specifications at a
1: local mill? The stuff at Cambridge. Well, no, the the first one, the knitting worsted was a yarn of theirs, but the sheep's down was her own design. Yes, was her own design of a yarn that she developed with Cambridge.
0: Some of our listeners will remember Elizabeth Zimmerman's mail order yarns and a few precious examples of the correspondence that would often accompany their order have been turning up in the Ravelry thread. I have been a longtime listener of an audio podcast called Knitting Pipeline and Paula Emmons Feasley began that podcast with sharing some correspondence that she had received um, uh, and went back and forth with Elizabeth Zimmerman over time. For those of us who haven't had the benefit of this experience, can you explain the industry that she was building? And you've talked about the yarns, but like, how did it work? How were people getting these? What was the whole process of her industry?
1: I, I think originally she was buying these yarns for herself right because she was selling through a number of of avenues the women's exchange in both in both uh, Milwaukee and in uh, New York City she would knit for people in on commission in New York City. there's a hilarious ad that she um, took out in uh, field and stream in 1963 in which she's selling the title was, Hand-knit hunting socks, like Grandma used to make, heavy, unbleached natural sheep's wool, nylon in toes and heels, twelve inches high, state size, seven fifty a pair. What? Seven fifty! Exclamation point! Exclamation point! All right then, make them yourself. Just send $1.60 for sufficient yarn and full instructions. So she's selling hand-knit socks through Field and Stream magazine in 1963, which just seems. It seems kind of unbelievable to me. But so so she's starting to get to, to, to get these yarns made for herself. Um, she, well she's ordering at that point, that's before she's having them custom made, but she's ordering them in bulk and at wholesale prices. I think eventually this little hint of just send for sufficient yarn, she may have realized at some point, you know, it's much easier to sell the yarn. So there's a wonderful essay she wrote about giving talks and about uh, she didn't charge, she would go to an all-day program where she would just be this little piece of the program and it might be a women's club or something. And, uh, you know, she would have all her yarns out and she would sell them. So like a little trunk show, I guess we'd call it. Um, and if she- and if they allowed her to sell things, then she wouldn't, you know, charge for the talk, but she would talk about knitting and she'd talk about her yarns. So, uh, maybe she'd present a design. Uh, and then she would you know pack up she says and then pretty soon she says it's time to put the potatoes on and so we're closing up shop and we're packing things up and I'm driving home and I'm pretty elated with myself because it was a good day and she said something about you know she was thankful for the days when her family didn't bother her but when they just let her deflate slowly and then uh, pretty quickly I think so in in 1955 is when she's buying a lot of yarn by 1956, 57, she's sending out a little customer newsletter. She's got um, enough of a customer list that she's sending out little samples. By 1958, that's when she she makes a big jump and she turns towards sending out her designs as well. And it actually becomes what then became uh, called the newsletter. Initially, she was sending out a little
0: newsletter with samples so people yes. could see and feel the yarns that she had about. Yeah, little
1: little two inch little clips of them in the colors yeah and, and I've the, seen some of those those are amazing yeah
0: then she started expanding it to include designs and that's maybe the newsletters that some of us are a little more familiar with yeah
1: those are the things that became uh, reprinted in the opinionated knitter um, she talked about the need to have um, a little note that went out to her customers. Um, and so she went to a printer and he had some narrow pieces of paper that he could print on, that he, they were just offcuts from some other jobs, so they were cheap. And so she started this long, skinny little newsletter that could be folded up and and, and addressed and sent out. You know, so she's attentive to the idea that, People need to be able to have choices in their materials. She's a craftsperson. She gets to make these decisions about her work.
0: Was there any mention in archives or anything you read about how she felt about the money-making aspect of running a business?
1: Yeah, she talks in several places about she, there's, one, there's one lovely spot I'm thinking of in 1971 where she's writing in what becomes this first draft of the Knitter's Almanac. And it's, um, you know, she's packing up the books for her first book, Knitting Without Tears, that came out. And she's running her yarn business. It's 71. She's at, really at some of the height of her success or really starting to achieve the heights of her success. And she talks about how much this is all just fun. It's just play. She's retired she, you know, she's just happy beyond the, you know, the dreams of idleness. It's it's just a wonderful life. And as if she's not running a business, as if, you know, she she had an amazing gift for um for just enjoying how much fun she was having. You know, I, I'm sure she found like the rest of us that, you know, running a business and and having to pay the bills and and figure out. You know how are you going to talk to this person and talk to that person and answer that letter and this? You know, I'm I'm sure the the busyness got to her, but she she doesn't ever really talk about. Um, needing to make money. She talked, in fact, uh, there are a number of places where she talks about, you know, this is just play. This is just play money for me. She actually made enough money, certainly that she sent several of her kids to Europe in their high school years for trips abroad. And, and you know, I, I think in one of the books, there's a picture of the car she bought for herself with the money that she made. So it was a profitable business, but but that's not what she was serious about, in a sense, you know, She got serious about other things. She got serious about intellectual ownership. And that's something we're going to talk about in a later episode because she was very clear on what were her designs.
0: Do you think that the handwritten notes on people's orders were the rule rather than the exception? Oh, absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. She was the most gregarious person. She just... You know, I think if it was a chance to talk about knitting or wool or yarn, she just, you know, I can literally, in the seven years that I read through her private papers, I can think of one time that she was even a little bit snarky about somebody. Just, that's it. Hmm. She was, she just was having a ball doing what she did. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I I found myself constantly, constantly amazed, you know? Yeah. So we've talked about Elizabeth
0: negotiating around expectations of domesticity and how her comfort or at least her familiarity with existing in a borderland assisted her apparent ease in being at once a wife and mother and a professional. But now we move beyond her own stance toward domesticity to the ways in which she began to influence how others interpreted domesticity. And to understand this, we need to know about her pursuit of exhibition opportunities at the Wisconsin State Fair. So you've said that at the fair, remember, they're interested in judging the made object.
1: Yeah. 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 Sorry. I didn't mean to
0: interrupt you there. In a way, all those, to me, I don't know, maybe this is my own set of uh, biases, I guess. To me, an exhibition like something at a state fair is a comment on domesticity. When you see all those made things, when you see all the jars of jam, when you see all of the zucchinis lined up, you know, three on a plate, the same size, yeah. <laughs> it's making a comment, I think, about domesticity. So I'm wondering what you have to say about that.
1: So the state fair, this is this is one of the this is one of the areas where you have to think of the icebergs of culture moving in pants, right? The state fair is arising out of a rural tradition in which serious work and serious income production were expected in the domestic space, right? The domestic space of the household and the farmyard and the garden were all areas that the farm wife was expected to have serious economic interest in. Even if it wasn't that she was selling jams, She was using the production of the farm so that already there, the kernel of the idea of domesticity is different. It is a domesticity that is interested in productivity, not in the way that Jacqueline Kennedy embodied domesticity. That's a different tradition of domesticity. That's a very elite, non-productive, decorative kind of domesticity. Whereas the, the tradition of the state fair is squarely in the productive woman, productive economically, productive technically, proficient at her, skilled, right? That's a very different form of domesticity. And so in that sense, They weren't asking every farm wife to be great at jams, great at the three perfect zucchini, great at knitting a scarf and great at whatever another category might be. They were saying, what are you good at? Show us what you're best at. And that's a very different thing from saying, "Okay, now we we will now say you deserve the title of jam maker. You deserve the title of whatever, right? The identity, that's a different tradition. Um, and it's one that Elizabeth clearly felt very comfortable being in. She was in the, in the State Fair, 1955 to 1961 is the records that I have. Uh, although that was only what she had in her, uh, in her archives, I would love to go look at it from the opposite side to see what the records of the State Fair had because I would love to have a more complete record. But one of the things that gets to be real interesting is in 61, there's a long juror statement included with her archive that she kept. And in this statement, it's um, a certi- and she wins a certificate of merit. It's actually a fairly high level award that she gets. And she's listed as being in the professional division. See, at some point, the state fair d- divides up. They move from sort of an amateur division to a professional division. This is one of the areas where I would just love to do so much more research. Anyway, so this juror, Roy Dinstrom, he writes at great length about, about how, how strange it is that the fair allows people to self-select as professional or as amateur. You enter a category, the state fair didn't give you any guidance about whether you thought you were professional or, right? They were allowing you to self-identify. And he writes about the difference between the two. And this becomes really fascinating because he says the professional, quote, selects for himself a sterner discipline, declares a willingness to be judged within more restricted limits. I assume that such craftsmen consider themselves to have achieved a high level of skill in the handling of their medium, consider themselves capable of making firm and positive statements in that medium, and that deviations from the more traditional forms of expression are the result of a disciplined talent and a searching sensitive intellect working toward an extension of the boundaries within which... Serious craftsmen have chosen to work in that medium. I look for technical competence as a basic requirement, with no place for the trivial, no novelty for its own sake. Novelty for its own sake is suspect, as is ineptness under the guise of self-expression. While there are a number of experimental pieces in the show, I feel them to be highly competent, valid and positive statements which adhere to disciplines as strict as those of a more traditional counterpart. The traditional pieces are excellent examples of technical proficiency coupled with a great deal of sensitivity and taste. Every bit as exciting and as creative as the more adventurous entries. So he's talking there. As I read that over again, I'm struck again by um, almost the masculinity of that language. And it's not clear. So he awards Elizabeth this certificate. He gets. He lets her things in and he gives her the Certificate America of Merit. it's not really clear if he thinks hers are adventurous because they're knitting or does he think they're traditional? And you could sort of, that could go one way or the other, but he lets in seven pieces. There is no other textile exhibitor who has that many pieces in it in the whole show. So, you know, clearly he's identifying her work as professional level, right? And at the top of the game of professional level.
0: Yeah. I wonder if there's a message there with so many pieces, what's required is a spread of the ability in order to be a true measure of who this professional artist is. Like maybe one or two pieces would not be enough to show what he thinks is the merit
1: of her work. Or it may be that he was unfamiliar enough with knitting. It's hard to imagine that at this time in this place, this guy knew much about knitting. Um, Particularly if he is a professional fine craft juror, it might be that that was a serious education for him. Because think of seven different pieces uh, where you would see maybe sock heels or different shoulder shapings or different ways to do a cardigan front. Think of all the techniques you could show off in seven pieces do we know what those seven pieces were i did not have them in my list let's see
0: but we could imagine given that it's elizabeth that yeah and that it's 1961 what was she working on then? yeah Mm -hmm. so is this what
1: you mean
0: by the instituted identity that's in our title today
1: Yes this is the beginning of that yeah the idea that we that other people might impose an identity that an institution an accepted authority can impose an identity on you right can say you are one of us or you are not one of us right and that's that's his comment about how strange you know how strange it is that the fair just lets you people decide that is strange that they would have <laughs> these levels. Usually
0: when there are levels, there's an interest in who's in that level and who gets to control who's in that level. Yeah. So they have the yes. levels but then you can pick.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's the whole that's the whole thing about at what point does the state fair start to, in its iceberg shape, drift away from the idea of domestic productivity as the thing we're judging. And suddenly there's this other, there's this fine craft where you're a professional. How does that arise? What was the conversation there? I would find that fascinating.
0: So let's go back to your mention of the Wisconsin designer craftsmen and their visioning and revisioning what is a craftsperson over and over again. Tell us, tell us some stories, tell us some things that you found out. Yeah,
1: so the Wisconsin designer crafts group, um, again, and I think I said this at some other time, you know, they're coming out of an area where there was a, a history of fine hand building right? Everything from carriages to furniture, you know, there's a big history in the upper Midwest of that kind of skilled tradesman. Um, and so as industry, as as mechanized industry is taking over many of those things, the the field of fine craft sort of arises, the, the uh, respect for handmaking. I just want to hit on that because being a Northeasterner,
0: I don't think that I realized until I was reading some of your notes, what a tight pinch that must have felt in a place like the Midwest when that mechanized corporations started coming into being that, you know, the carriage industry was becoming the car industry. Right. In other places in the country, I don't think people felt it quite that same way as they did around the upper midwest like that.
1: I think that may well be true simply because the midwest was such a hugely productive region and that that became the place where the where the modern industries started to settle, right? In Ohio, in in Michigan, in Wisconsin, in, in Indiana. You know, those became places where uh, you know, Gary Steelworks in Northern Indiana. You know, no longer are you just talking about you've got some lovely skilled blacksmiths running around who can do fabulous ironwork. You've got Gary Steelworks, and they don't care whether you're a skilled craftsman. They just want you to run the machine. You know, they want you to pour the iron. The development of the idea of the professional craftsperson as a fine crafts handmaking person it has special resonance in those areas. So as the W C D C comes in here, so they're becoming they're becoming interested in differentiating themselves from industry. They're becoming interested in differentiating themselves from all these crafting women. They're becoming interested in differentiating themselves from the. I keep thinking of the cover of a book called *The Southern Highlands*, and it's the weavers there. A lot of, of a lot of northern women went down to the southern areas of the Appalachia and attempted almost development work in, in giving these women, you know, crafts that they could sell, ways to make money for their families. The Wisconsin designer craftsmen or the ACC didn't really want to identify those people as professional craftsmen. They're starting to recognize certain things are true about the state of the craftsman. Uh, they realize that their membership is probably changing over time, that the state of any craftsman is necessarily fluid, right? You're unlikely to be earning your sole living from what you're doing. You probably are requiring some sort of family support or some kind of other full or part-time job which has makes calls on your time and your productivity. And so they're they're trying to grapple with all sorts of things, but it isn't just you've got a lot of money and you like fine things. It's more than that. But in 1956, uh, the June Constitution shows two different levels of membership. One allows for a simple interest, right? It could be the associate member, which was any entry-level craftsperson or interested person. And then the second web level, which was the active member, which you had to show a record of exhibition. That was it. In 1960, they go through a revision. They disallow anybody who's just interested. They say that the associate level now has to be adjudicated with five pieces completed within the last two years. Then the active membership means, says, and that stuff, and you have to be in at least one of the three major shows that the WCDC puts on every year. They put on an annual show, a Christmas show, and a traveling show that went all around the state and exhibited, right? Yeah, they had these three major shows. So they said, if you wanna be at the next level, you have to exhibit there. And those were all juried shows, right? For the first time, if you didn't make it into the one of the exhibits, you would fall to the lower level of membership, right? So suddenly now there's like, you have to keep exhibiting. You have to show your work, right? 1965, they do another revision and they add a, co- a new level, right? So they keep the associate level, adjudication with five pieces within the last two years. They add a professional level, which is sort of roughly the old active level, but it includes an, a requirement of exhibition in two, not just one, but two professional state or national craft exhibitions. And the submission of five original craft works, and again, there's a, a, a an allowance for lapsing, right? If you don't exhibit or you don't keep producing, you're down to the other level, right? Um, but then this—that's the first year that they also say there's an accredited level, which means you are also a member of the ACC. It's interesting that they keep—they kind of keep bumping back and forth about what does it mean can you fall out of this can you stay in it but it's clear that they're they're really grappling with the idea of what what does it mean it's really interesting because in looking at the archives there's no mention of elizabeth at all i mean her name appears in some of the records but they don't there's no discussion of her membership that i could find it's interesting to think about this increasing professionalism Happening at the same time that she's trying to get in, and in her early years of getting in, and it's it's hard for me not to see this as a response to someone like her, who's sort of clearly disrupting some ideas. They 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 mislabel knitting, which was the state fair did too sometimes, um, but they mislabel knitting as weaving. Um, but it's also true that there was hardly a more strongly gendered domestic handcraft at the time than knitting. To their minds, it must have appeared much more like jam making, you know, than glass blowing. I think they have a hard time sort of situating it in the prof- as a professional studio activity. Even though she's doing all the things, she's selling her work, she's selling designs, she's selling materials, uh-huh. she's starting to write, she's right, She's doing all these things. But it's also important to realize, I think, that knitting had absolutely no place in the two historical, historically important movements about craft. In neither the British arts and crafts movement, nor in the Bauhaus. Knitting played no role in any of those. And those two movements, going back to the idea of cultural icebergs, are the big drivers you know, for precedent, the trajectories among, uh, along which the American Craft Council is beginning to say, okay, these things are craft, right? These have a historical role in the craft movements and knitting had no place there. It's not to say that Jane Morris didn't knit but the arts and crafts people never wrote about knitting, as far as I know. Hmm. Yeah. So it, So you. They're. They're clearly grappling with this. Um. But she does become an exhibiting member in 1958, and in fact, there's a fair amount of um, newspaper coverage of her pieces. Uh. There. She gets a couple of great uh articles. Uh. The 1958 sweater uh is covered in the Milwaukee Sentinel. And uh, it's, the article says it's a blow for knitting as an aesthetic art was struck by Elizabeth Zimmerman, who has an extremely handsome bulky high neck sweater in a Scandinavian-ish pattern of black on gray in the show. It's priced at $150, but anyone buying it could pass it on decades hence as an heirloom. Um, so she exhibits regularly in all three of those shows from 1958, 1960, 63 to 67, 69, 71. Um, and the membership, Record. So there's there's a better record of exhibition than there is of membership. The membership records are a little sketchy, um, but her the records do show that she was a member from 1958 to 1974. And as best as I can tell, in 1960, she was an active member, which was the highest level. And in 1965, she was a professional member, which was the highest level. And in 1971, she was an accredited member, which means she was also a member of the ACC. And that's another area where I would love to dig into their membership records and see what did she send in as an application.
0: So it seems because this is so consistent, right? When there's a new level,
1: She's on. Topic. She's on it. Yeah, she's on it. <laughs> and, then, and then and it's hard not to see, and, and this is probably ridiculous, but it's hard not to see that they keep changing the game on her. Yeah. And she's there every time. She's good at what she's doing. Oh, so so she writes in her 59, uh 1959, 1960 winter newsletter. She talks about. Um, inviting her members to go see her readers to go look at the exhibit and that they should try and exhibit their things as well.
0: I wanted to ask you about this. So she she shares her attempts with her readers and yeah. she invites them to go public with their work as well. And so what do you think is the extent of her impact in, in creating these invitations and attempting to motivate her readers?
1: I think it's fairly significant. I think that there were a fair number of women who were, and you know, like Paula Simmons, the, the spinning, uh, the woman who who really started first writing about spinning, uh, Barbara Walker at the same time, there were a fair number of women who were starting to take control of their craft. It didn't take a lot of encouragement, but it does help, right? It does help when you say, ah, she got something in a show. I should do something. Representation matters, right? She's representing knitting. Uh, She says, let your mind run on the possibilities of knitting as a genuine craft. I've had sweaters in two craft exhibits recently, and it feels wonderful. So if you've done any designing of your own, try entering it in a show. I feel very strongly about the integrity of knitting and, and shall expatiate on this at another time. In 1960, she wins a $25 Dr. Owen Otto Award um, for three different sweaters. Um, In 1960, she... And she starts to do... So at this point, her designing career is also taking off. So what she's doing, she's sort of working all the angles here in a really interesting way. So she is knitting a sweater, an original design sweater. She sells the design to Women's Day. She enters the sweater in... Wisconsin Designer Craftsman. So these designs that she's selling are also the same things that she's exhibiting. And in 1971 is the year that they move full-time to Babcock. They leave Milwaukee and Arnold has retired and they move up to the schoolhouse. Um, And it may just have been that she was meeting with enough, enough success and was busy enough with her yarn business that she decides you know, she's just not really gonna to bother with the WCDC anymore. I I don't know, but it sort of falls out of the archive at that point.
0: So, Dr. Lily, would you like to make any concluding remarks about today's topic of studio craft professionalism and instituted identity?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think that for Elizabeth, the WDC was a form of recognition that she wanted, and that she achieved. She was always at their highest level. But in the end, I'm not sure it gave her what she was hoping for. The fact that she doesn't stay with them, that she doesn't continue to exhibit. She does, I think, while it's there in town, she's, it's convenient to some extent. Although I use that term, and I there's nothing that she says about that. I guess I need to be careful about about imputing motivations to her. But it kind of seems like it doesn't get her where she wants to go. It doesn't give her the success or the influence that she really wants. And, and it's almost an example maybe of sort of following a traditional path to recognition the way if you're a painter, you want to have your stuff on gallery walls. But it sort of, it sort of doesn't give her. She gets She gets great articles. She wins some prizes. She sells some pieces but she's not talking to other knitters there. And what she really wanted to do was talk to other knitters. And so as the aspects where she's more successful, and we'll talk about this next time, which is when she starts designing for industry, that's where the real excitement for her happens, I think, where she is able to like, massively changed the way people think about knitting. That must have been tremendously more satisfying for her. You know, there's a there's a lovely picture of her in the archive of her standing over one of her early sweaters. Um, she's got a hat on that I think was also in the show, and she's standing over a sweater that's on sort of a slant board display thing. That must have been another thing. How did they, how they must have had fits over how were they going to display these things? You know, this isn't a wall hanging, this isn't a piece of glass, this isn't a furniture. How do you display a sweater? You know. Um, they must. She must have been a pain <laughs> in the neck. Yeah, that's that's the only thing that, I should, that She must have been a thorn in their side for years. Yeah. <laughs> um, but she's sort of. But the expression on her face, she's sort of making a face, and she was, a, you know, she was a goofy woman in a lot of ways. Um. But she's sort of making her a, an expression on her face that sometimes I look at that and I and I wonder, what are you really thinking? Are you thinking this was worth it? Are you thinking? Mm-hmm this isn't as exciting as I thought it was going to be, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a little bit hard, but the fact that it sort of falls out of her archives and she never really continues to talk about it after they leave Milwaukee. Doesn't get further mentions in the newsletter. It doesn't, you know. So it becomes remarkable
0: for what she doesn't say. about Yeah. It.
1: Yeah. She succeeded. And I think for her, it was like, well, yeah. Okay. What next? Mm-hmm. What can I do next?
0: And that's a great place to conclude for today. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs>